0: And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's the hard, rockin', long-talkin', name dropping Coot Street Podcast!
1: And Monster Truck Rally. I mean, where are you learning to do this stuff?
0: Hey, can't you tell by now? Nowhere at all, Gary. Nowhere at all. This is the perfect sound, or this this is the sound of nearly perfect ignorance. Oh, if we work hard, we can perfect it. (laughs) Mind, I don't know. After 168 issues, Ari, I don't think we've affected anything yet.
1: (laughs) Well, that's we don't. Um, So, what what, what news do we have this week? What's new? It's Black Friday here in the United States. That's right. I guess it doesn't mean anything to anybody else anywhere in the world.
0: Um, no, Marianne used to talk to me about it, and I had no idea what it was. It's this—I mean, she you know, someone told me Black Friday. It's the first official day of Christmas shopping, and I was
1: like, uh, "The first official, it? yeah, the first official day of Christmas shopping." As it turned out, it was actually yesterday, which was Thanksgiving Day, with all these stores opening. The term Black Friday, I, as I understood it, was that historically that is the day in the year when retail stores. Moved from the red into the black in terms of profitability. Yeah, I've heard that. The sales at the beginning of the Christmas season were so crucial to the year-long profitability that going into the black meant... The first time I heard the phrase, I thought that was terrible. I thought this was... Black Tuesday was when the stock market crashed in 1929 and people jumped out of windows. So I thought... I first heard the phrase maybe, I don't know, years ago, and I was thinking, what's so bad about that? And I realized, (laughs) no, it's, it's an economic term. It has nothing to do with crashes and suicides and that's right it's all about marketing <coughs> which is, is and, and, and the bargains are almost chimerical I mean by and large yes. Uh, the, the, the sale prices online are the same as the sale prices that you go into stores and beat people up
0: there. oh yeah I'm so my, my my theory is it has nothing to
1: do with saving money it's a blood sport.
0: so okay it was black friday it was also thanksgiving happy thanksgiving to you to to your family and to anybody else who celebrates it out there in the world right and what do we have going on in australia for holidays this time of year nothing well actually there's nothing uniquely australian on at the moment uh obviously there's also hanukkah yes as you'd be aware so we've been celebrating hanukkah um and getting ready for the run-up to Christmas, which is not that far away, obviously, now. It's only about three and a half weeks away, I think.
1: Getting close, absolutely.
0: So finishing all the Christmas shopping, picking out all those perfect books to give to people, and realizing that I hope that none of them give me any books because, oh, my God, I have too many. And some of our friends on follow podcasts have already recommended Christmas shop. They have, and I think SF Signal did a, a, a Christmas shopping list or something. Which I, which I commend to you if you want lots of art books, I think it was.
1: I would not want
0: to second-guess any book shopping
1: showing this because the the problem with giving books to people is the tendency to give people books that you think they ought to read rather than books that they might read rather than books that you know they won't read will look nice on the shelf. Um, and I, I, I spend a lot of time... I have relatives and in-laws who are not readers. And I spent a lot of years buying them books thinking, this will convert them. It yeah. won't convert them. It won't work. I'm <laughs> not going to read the books. I'm going to read the book with July. Okay.
0: Actually, so, here, here's, a, here's the thing, uh, Gary, which is in, in keeping with the time. If you could get one book for Christmas, what book would you like to get, Gary? One book for Christmas? For you. Okay. Um... This
1: is an interesting question, because I, I will tell you, the first thing that popped into my mind, and it's probably because it was actually a copy sold in Brighton, would be a copy of The Outsider Brothers.
0: Really? Yes. Okay. Now, is that just uh, because only, it's a collectible you don't have, or is it because is, it you particularly be- feel like reading it over the Christmas break?
1: Um, uh, you can get better texts now, thanks to Joshi and others, of those Lovecraft stories. Uh, it's it's a collectible. I'm not a terribly good collector, The reason I'm sensitive to that particular book is that it was the first actual rare book when I was a kid that I became aware of. This is a really rare book, and it's really hard to get, and I spent much of my childhood wanting it and never thinking I could get it. So it's just just an artifact of having heard about this as a famous hard-to-get book for decades.
0: Okay. I've got one of those which I'll... Okay. M- my equivalent when I think about the first book I remember thinking about being rare, which is not something I thought about for most of my my childhood, frankly, I guess would have been the um, Arkham edition of Dark Carnival. The Ray Bradbury first collection.
1: Well, the thing is, okay, the reason I didn't mention Dark Carnival is because my brother, who was always like three steps ahead of me <laughs> buying stuff, Back when you had to actually mail order stuff by sending it a written letter, and, when, and we would haunt used bookshops, and we would haunt. Somewhere in some junk shop, uh, he found a first edition of Dark Carnival for like $2. And it didn't have a dust jacket or anything, but it was still Dark Carnival, so I have a source spot about that. <laughs> he got it, and I didn't.
0: Well, I guess what Did I really. <laughs> yeah. What he I ended- really. Yes, no, you you go ahead. No, it's just a parenthesis.
1: Years later, and I'm talking about when I was probably... No, this was actually when I was in college. And he knew I was interested in David Lindsay, and he tracked down a first edition, well, I should say at that point, an only edition of Devil's Mm Store, which was Lindsay's other novel that's actually kind of readable and interesting besides Voyager's Yep. So that kind of thing
0: thrilled me at that point. My problem is I don't get thrilled by books anymore. Not particularly. Um, uh, sometimes. Sometimes something will come along. Either someone hasn't been writing for a long time or you read the first book in something and it becomes... You know, you really are eager to read the next. That happens oh, yeah. sometimes, you know. I mean, when Guy Gavriel K puts out a new novel, I'm excited to get a hold of it, you know. Uh, one I was going to say that whilst Dark Carnival might have been the collectible, uh, particularly, the I guess, the, the achievable collectible, because there are a few Heinlein first editions that just for emotional, not literary reasons I'd like to have, that are just clownishly expensive. So they're just ridiculous. You're not, you mean, you're not going to go and buy a copy of Strange in a Strange Land or Moon as a Harsh Mistress in first edition, because they're going to you know, set you back eight, nine, dollars dollars $10,000. Right,
1: and you have to be a serious collector for that, which I don't
0: claim to be. Yeah. I don't claim
1: to be a good collector at all.
0: On the other hand, no, me either. On the other hand, a new or newish book that I'd like to read, you know, that I can I can think of a few examples. So, for example, uh, if I suddenly were to open my email and someone had emailed me a copy of the third Ian MacDonald Plains Runner novel, which I know you've read and reviewed for Locus, <laughs> then I would be a very happy man, I have to say, because I'd love to read that book. you know, And I think it would make great holiday reading. Well, that's something I think it comes
1: up as well, because – and this happens every month when, you're, when I'm looking at positive stuff to review – And it doesn't happen every month, but it happens enough times during the year when you're looking at the pile and you think, I know that one will be fun. And you pick it up and you read it, and it's fun in exactly the way you expect it to be fun. And so far, all three novels of the Planes Runner series have been doing that. Yes. Uh, So so something that's reliably enjoyable in that sense, Uh, you know, as opposed to, without mentioning any names, as opposed to a fourth novel in a trilogy that should have just been a trilogy. (laughs) I get some of
0: those as well. Sure. Well, well you do. Uh, but I mean, I, I'm thinking. I mean, I, I loved uh, Planes Runner. I, I enjoyed *Be My Enemy*. And I know that uh, the third book, *Empress of the Sun*, or whatever it is, Empress of the Sun. is coming out. It's coming out in uh, January, and I'm away with my family for our Christmas break, 21st mm-hmm. through 29th of December. And it would be the perfect book to read while I was away if I had a copy. If anyone at Joe Fletcher Books or Pyre or anywhere were listening, or Ian, that would be the great thing to read. But what I'm probably going to read, actually, here's the other thing. It's, it's the corollary okay. before we get down to the core of our podcast. Ha ha. Um, what do you think you will read over the holidays, Barry? Do you have a real break planned this year?
1: Um, I don't know. Um,
0: what's going to happen for the next two weeks is I'm
1: not going to read much of anything. It's the end of my semester. I have lots of papers and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. and then I'll be looking for uh, books that are due in February there's one that I actually have um, read and I'm, I'm, I'm completely blanking on what it is um, which, which was an unexpectedly pleasurable book and I only read this book uh,
0: oh I have to think about it in a minute
1: because my, I'm not even drinking a glass of wine tonight either. Uh, Marcel uh, Thoreau Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And it's, it's a, this is something about blurbs. This is a sort of parentheses within a parentheses. But it had a, it had a comment on it from M. John Harris, who does not seem to blurb a lot of books. And the comment was an interesting comment. And it turned out, so I thought, okay, this is going to be a literary novel that's a little bit science fictional and it's probably going to misuse the science fiction in some way. All of which was true, but it was a really well written novel. Yeah. So that kind of thing is is another kind of surprise, where you're expecting something to be a little bit twee, and it's not. It's a solid novel with some really sharp observation, sharp detail, and sort of thing. Other than that, I've uh, got uh, things I don't know about. One of the big bestsellers, I guess, early next year is going to be this novel called Red Rising by Pierce Brown. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'll finish it, but I'll start it to see
0: where it goes.
1: Because sometimes something which is an
0: overmarketed bestseller actually tends to be a pretty good novel. Yeah. Well, for me, we're in this run-up obviously to Christmas, I'm, and uh, as everybody who listens to the podcast knows, because of our exhaustive complaining, uh, it is, is it is locus recommended reading time. We are in the thick of it even as I speak. Lists are going around. People are recommending books and stories and all of that, which is great. And I intend to. Go dark for a week in the middle of that and disappear. Uh, where for for nine days I will be offline. Uh, you know, the only nine days of the year when I ever would be. And I'm going to read yeah 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 the history of pop. Gary, that's my okay. that, that's my planned um, book reading at the moment, uh, unless the Ian the Donald book shows up. Because I think I want to spend some time not reading science fiction and not thinking about science fiction just for a little bit. It's good to get a break I from think- it.
1: I think that's enormously healthy. I think that, I mean, I've tried to do that for up to a week, a month, and I've not been very successful. I end up reading The New Yorker, or maybe somebody mm, yeah. gives me a copy of The Atlantic, or I'll uh, or, or read some nonfiction book. But uh, when I, I wrote my first book on science fiction many years ago, and I spent two years catching up with science fiction I hadn't read. After I finished it and sent it off and got it accepted, I went back and read all of Hemingway. Yeah. Um, and if I were to do that today, I'd be being all the of them away and thinking, oh, this guy writes just like Joe Haldeman. <laughs> <laughs> but uh,
0: I bet you. one book
1: I will recommend, I can recommend this book in advance uh, to all of our listeners because it's just going to be a lot of fun, is Joe Walton's What Makes This Book So Great. Yes. Are her collected tour columns on science fiction classics, and they're always provocative. I don't always agree with them. No, no. Uh, really well-reasoned. And lively, and she says up front that these are columns written by a a book lover and a lover of science fiction, not by an academic critic, and I think that is all to the advantage of these essays.
0: Well, the other book I'm going to take away to read and may or may not read because of timing is Nicola Griffith's Hill, which we were talking about last week. Mm-hmm. And I should just, as a as an as an aside to the aside, I wanted to say that we'd had a conversation. Uh, on the uh, website uh, following the publication of the podcast about the attribution of the term Fantastica. Uh, And we've had comments from various listeners, and thank you to them, and a response from John Clute, which was also appreciated, basically about how I had said, I think that John Clute had coined the term Fantastica largely because I'm the one of us who's ignorant enough to make that kind of a statement, when of course the the term has been in use widely throughout Europe for a long time, Mm. and John himself has been very, very careful to attribute it correctly, so it's actually just my intellectual laziness rather than anything else, and I just wanted to, in in the body of the podcast itself rather than just in comments, take a moment to say that we were aware that it wasn't something that John had made up, just that he used it, and he used it with a specific slant. Mm-hmm. He, so, he adapted the term because it was a term that was...
1: There was an Eastern European magazine with that title. I think it's, yeah. it's Hungarian. It, 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 it's a term. But the point is, it's a term that comes from a culture that didn't really have a separate word for science fiction. Uh, and that's why I think it's interesting, because we don't have a word like that in English, and this is one of the things I think that John recognized. Um, there really is, I remember At some point, I looked up the various terms. I mean, Italian fantasienza, I think. Yeah. Uh, which is basically kind of science fantasy. thing. But fantastica was the only term which I think John was able to find, and certainly the only one I'm aware of, that covered this whole field uh, without making some reference specifically to science or to fantasy, which yeah. seems to be the polarities of the field.
0: Sure. Are you aware of any discussion, Gary, um about how our field uses terminology, because we do seem to have a fascination with it. We do seem to have a fascination with coining unique terms and then uh, fighting against them and trying to you know, reinterpret them and, because maybe somebody's defining something and somebody else doesn't agree with it. Uh, it doesn't seem to fit in some particular aspect of things that's trying to be shoehorned into uh, a discussion. Are you aware of anybody actually cut looking at that? Um,
1: to some extent,
0: it, I don't know if anybody's looked at the
1: lexical mania of science fiction readers. In fact, such a term. I mean, I did a book of critical terms several years ago, and the reason I was doing that was simply trying to put together the various terms that that academics and critics had invented, which were completely separate from mm-hmm. terms that fans had invented. That goes back to the fan encyclopedia of the forties. Um, I got taken down a few notches for not having any fandish terms, yeah. and then more recently we've had the uh, uh, the Oxford uh, fact, the Oxford Dictionary of Science, okay, uh, put together by Jeff Pru- Prufier, I believe, uh, Prucher, I believe That's uh, that's right. And and that sort of combines some academic terms, some writers' terms, uh, some workshop terms. There's the Turkey City Lexicon, which is out there for would know, writers. Yes, um, I'm. So so it's not only that people have had a mania for pointing terms, there have been Spanish terms, there have been academic terms, there have been writing workshop terms, and there have been the terms that were sort of somewhere between Spanish and professional terms, like speculative fiction, for example.
0: So then would it be short, accurate to say that the only thing there's not is a consensus about terms?
1: Uh, no, I, I I think there's probably a consensus. No, I, I think you're right. There's not a consensus about a lot of the terms we throw around. I mean, one of the things that uh, came up uh, in the last week was an interesting essay by Linda Nagata on the term hard
0: science. I, I was going to do one of those segue things into that, Gary. Well spotted, that man. Uh, hmm. And in fact, it's interesting that you know, as we segue, and I will maybe put a link in, I should say that it appeared. Ah, okay. Ah, uh, okay. The uh, Oxford Dictionary of Science Fiction is mostly online, and I was looking up their their definition of hard science fiction or hard SF, but it's not all there. Basically, it says, you know, science fiction in which the technology or science portrayed in the story has been extrapolated from current scientific theories. That kind of covers it, doesn't it?
1: Um, I guess what the, the, to, to get back to what Linda was actually saying in her essay... That's an element of the story, but it's not necessarily the whole story. Yeah. Uh, in other words, you were saying these are not stories about scientific principles or scientific discoveries or, or, or principles of physics, but stories that ground themselves in, in such things and then <clears throat> turn out to be uh, you know fairly suspenseful stories. One of Linda's stories from this past year in Ahiku West, is a good example of that. It's, it's, it's a terrific story. It's a terrifically suspenseful story, grounded in ideas of art. But I think the idea that she was trying to get across was that if you're not interested in reading about scientific theorems, you won't like her. Is, that, is a false,
0: false assumption? Okay. Um, let, let's let's actually talk about this essay because it's, it's of interest. It's come out at a time when Linda has just re- released, uh, self-published her first new science fiction novel in some years, a book called The Red, the first in the series, and follows after she self-published several fantasy novels, And she's had some acclaim uh, about a return to science fiction of sorts, I guess you'd call it, with a batch of stories that have appeared in Analog particularly over the last two years, including Nahiko West, which is great. And she's a very talented and skilled author. I read her article about um, hard science fiction on IO9, which is entitled It's Time to Start Reading Hard SF Again. And I confess to having been a little bit puzzled by it, I guess. And I was Mm -hmm. puzzled because I was trying to work out what it was that Linda was trying to achieve with the piece. Why address the issue of Hard SF, which comes up again and again. Uh, I think one of the actually interesting things about Hard SF is it's seen as a much more gendered term than anything else. I think Hard SF is seen as a much more male and male written thing, rightly or wrongly. Uh, Mm. And that Nick, uh, Linda's points, which have to do with, you know, ha- what hard SF is about. I mean, she addresses three or four, four common misconceptions about hard SF. That hard SF is about science and technology or engineering, which is basically true. It's not te- technology fiction or engineering fiction, but it is fiction which features some key element of science extrapolated from either in the foreground or background to build a story, and it doesn't break the known rules of science. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there's that. Hard science fiction is written from the point of view of scientists. I've never heard that as being a typical point of, um, of hard SF. I mean, yes, some famous works of hard SF are, but by no means all of them. I've never so heard some... Heard, yeah, sorry? She's never heard that as a misconception. No. She's listed misconceptions. Well, the ones she must have heard. I've never heard that hard SF is only of interest to scientists as a misconception. Maybe, you know, just one of those things. And that basically it's hard to understand. Um, I might have heard that a little bit more, and certainly I can point to a great deal of... Well, not a great deal. I can point to a number of key works of science fiction that are complicated. So I can sort of see that a little bit. And then uh, Linda goes on to do something which I'm never comfortable about, and that is she attempts to coin her own replacement term. Right. And, I mean, my feeling is by all means, address the, you know, the issue, you know, what you see as being the misconceptions about hard, about hard science fiction. But then I'm not sure there's a need to, to coin a replacement term.
1: Well, I think that goes back to the point you were making initially when we began the discussion. I think people love to coin terms. One of the terms she mentions in the essay is mundane science fiction, Jeff Ryman's term. Yes. Which is another coinage that strikes me as being a little bit misguided. Yeah. Uh, because mundane science fiction, it's good science fiction isn't mundane. It's only mundane in reference to the use of the term science in yeah. uh, Extrapolative fiction, uh, again, going back to, I don't know, maybe Heinlein again, uh, maybe Asimov. But what fiction isn't extrapolative? Well, that's exactly Historic my response. Is extrapolative. It, it, we're it, back
0: to health again. Yeah, and we're exactly back to one of my key issues with speculative fiction as well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, all fiction is speculative to some degree or other, or most of it is, whether it's speculative about matters of science or ma- matters of emotion or whatever else it might be. And similarly, yes, all fiction is extrapolative, so it wanders out to the meaningless. And you know, I, I don't see the what it adds to an understanding of hard science fiction, or to an understanding of science fiction, or to an understanding of much of anything, particularly that particular term. Uh, I certainly take her key point now. Uh, which possibly is that it's a marketing disaster, the hard SF term. Um,
1: That I agree. I'm not sure. I'm, how many books actually get marketed with the label hard SF these
0: In days? In 2013, I would think none, or, or close to none, very, very few. Uh,
1: I, I, I think that there is a danger that if somebody like a Greg Egan gets a reputation for being And the other point she makes is a point I can completely validate because she says that people misunderstand the word "hard" as meaning hard to read. And when I taught my last science fiction class, there were three or
0: four students who literally
1: thought the term "hard science fiction" meant it was hard to read. Difficult, yeah. Made
0: it difficult. Yeah, I've not encountered it, but I can I can imagine it. You know, so fair enough. And maybe it's not an ideal term. Uh, What are you going to call it? Rigorous science fiction? Well, you know. um, Scientifically plausible science fiction. Plausible is, well, as opposed to implausible science fiction.
1: I think to go back to one of Heinlein's, not one of Heinlein's, one of uh, John Campbell's, uh, I believe, instructions to uh, some of his writers in 1938 and 1939, was that this should be realistic fiction. Yeah. This should be realistic fiction set in a world which you have logically extrapolated from known science and technology and society. Uh, or that thing is, is this, something, this should be something that could be read as a realistic story by somebody living in the world that you are portraying in. Mm. So the hind the roads must roll, take out one of his examples, uh, you know, if you imagine that world, he's simply writing a realistic representative story, mm. which also explains why the characters in early hard science fiction stories were largely like 1940s uh, male stereotypes and female stereotypes and scientist stereotypes, because they were... They were trying to write realistic fiction set in a speculative universe. So if you want to use the phrase realistic science fiction, if it's science fiction, it has to be science fiction. If it's realistic, it has to be plausible, I guess. It's just another way of saying plausible science fiction.
0: I guess one of the, one of the things to think about with this whole discussion of terminology surrounding fiction is what are you using it for? Now... Terminology that's used to codify, analyze, understand what writers are trying to do and what the field is evolving through at any given point, I think are interesting and useful. For all that mundane SF was a failed term, I think largely because mundane sounds like dull, yeah. it nonetheless was trying to come to terms with an interesting issue. And that was, how, how do you write realistic near future science fiction that Plays within the rules of hard science fiction without getting into the whole issue of, um, of, um, you know, fast flight travel or country. Um, then there's terminology that's used for marketing purposes. Hard SF as a term predates using these sort of terms as marketing categories. And I've got no doubt that hard SF fails as a marketing category. When I talk to pu- people in publishing here in Australia, even the term science fiction is, is poison on any book. Really?
1: Yes. Um, I can see that to some extent with, uh, with, with books that are positioned as mainstream bestsellers, which are clearly science fiction. This goes back at least to Michael Crichton or to Tom Clancy, who died a few weeks ago. But yes, it, it's very important not to drive people away with the science fiction label.
0: Well, that's why, like, Alistair Reynolds here is uh, – he writes far future thrillers. Okay. He doesn't write science fiction.
1: Um,
0: I I, I can see that. Space opera seems to be a safer term than science fiction. Space opera is funny because I think it sounds archaic.
1: Um, But, you know, the new space opera itself is archaic by now. I I just – I, th- I think the idea is, is like thriller is uh, space opera sounds like something that might be fun to read. Space opera doesn't sound like it's difficult or hard science. It sounds like it'll be um, an adventure story. Um, but you can't label everything with a thriller. I mean, you've got supernatural thrillers, you've got crime thrillers, you've got urban fantasy thrillers. You've got uh, so a far future thriller is a way of saying, I guess that um, oh. It, it reads like a thriller, but it has a bizarre setting, yeah, and in fact, the uh, early Al Reynolds novels did exactly that mm-hmm. so I, th- I, th- I think that's not necessarily a uh, a fake description if the novel is structured as a thriller and lives up to its identity as a thriller, yes. I'm not sure we're getting anywhere with
0: this. But well, it's no, no. Okay. We're talking around the point. I can tell exactly where we've gotten in my okay. opinion. This would be my summation, maybe where we should have started, and that is we work in a field, we read in a field that wants to understand clearly what is happening. There's a lot of analysis, a lot of discussion. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of terms coined, thrown around, and reused, not commonly understood. They have two key kinds of purpose. One mm-hmm. is analytical. One is for marketing. One of the problems that we come up against when we attempt to have the discussion is when we confuse analytical terms for marketing terms. Hard That's science great. fiction as an analytical term is quite useful. It codifies a particular kind of story and is a particular kind of history to it. Hard science fiction as a marketing term is a failure. It discourages from people from picking up books that they may like. It confuses people of what kind of story they may encounter. It's not useful. That's what the discussion's about, in my opinion. Hang on a second. Alright. Talk amongst yourself.
1: Okay. Hello, I'm talking amongst myself right now. Uh, one of the problems with terms. I know that
0: it's are, so few small here. Can I call you back? Can I go to call you later or do you want to call her? You know, why don't you call her on my s- mobile?
1: Sometimes they you, Her number the numbers. I mean, Counter term. In other words, we're sometimes talking about uh, a taxonomy which is not a true taxonomy. You could make the argument then that hard science fiction makes sense if there is something parallel that you call soft science fiction. And a few times people have tried to throw out the term soft science fiction, referring to presumably to anthropology, psychology, social science, things that are not subject to the laws of physics. And yet soft science fiction has never caught on. Plus, the term soft science fiction is yep. itself meaning to the idea of... Um, whether anthropology is a hard science or a soft science, whether psychology can be a hard science or a soft science. So in other words, if you come up with a term like hard science fiction, and it doesn't, and, and there's nothing to describe the rest of science fiction, because as I just said, soft science fiction is a meaningless term. Sure What does hard science fiction tell you? In other words, you can you can divide up science fiction or fantasy in all kinds of ways, but if you're not using parallel definitions for those different forms, you don't have a useful
0: Uh, You're telling me we need a taxonomy of terms, Gary.
1: Um, I'm telling you that we think we have a taxonomy of terms, and we don't. We have terms that are completely redefined according to what we want to say about this particular... We want to say character-driven science fiction. Does that exclude hard science fiction? No. Of course it doesn't. But character-driven science fiction is a kind of meaningless term, except that there are science fiction writers who are better at deep, complex characterizations than others. We um, want me to ask- talk about science fiction, horror science fiction, horror and science fiction. It's a science fiction, or maybe a subcategory of science fiction. Science fiction may be a
0: subcategory of horror, but they're not mutually exclusive categories. Yeah. Well, okay, but is science fiction different from science fantasy? Depends on what you mean by science fantasy. Is, uh, uh, is science fantasy different from planetary romance?
1: Oh, yeah, it's different. So totally different from planetary romance. Everybody knows that. Could you tell me how? Um, planetary romance, um, the term that Lee Brackett thought she was writing back in the 40s, uh, was a romantic adventure story set on a planetary setting. So it had a science fictional setting. Science fantasy, as I've heard Gene Wolfe describe it, and others, is something like some of Gene's work, some of Jack Vance's work, it has the affect and feeling of fantasy. If you don't want to bother about
0: working out the far future world of it, you can read it as fantasy. So then what you're telling me here is a well-thought-through term that can be clearly defined is useful.
1: I think it is, but I think they're useful not
0: as taxonomies. My
1: point is all the terms we use, can throw planetary romance, space opera, hard science fiction, uh, they're they're all useful terms, but they're not mutually exclusive. No, they're not. People get where you have high of science fiction and we're going to cut it end yeah. of these slices.
0: they are at best fuzzy <laughs> sets that's
1: absolutely true <laughs> exactly they're all at best fuzzy sets
0: I mean the one that surprised me the most in the last handful of years and I get it but it would never have occurred to me was calling June a space opera
1: um, and interestingly enough if it that's
0: such it's, it's become kind of a classic of space operas even though there's very little Space and that really. If you if, if you'd called me a planet, it's a if you'd call, told me it was a planetary adventure or even a planetary romance of some kind or that kind of thing, I kind of get that because it really is set in apart from a little bit of peripheral stuff, the core ha- happens in one planetary set environment right, right. on Arrakis, right? Um, there's not a lot of zipping around. With, I mean, to me, space opera means a f- really zipping around with spaceships, possibly having military interaction, but zipping around in spaceships. And if you're not zipping around in spaceships, it's like there's that quote from Brian Alders that I keep coming across, which is, or I keep, keep repeating, uh, where you know space has to flow past the ports like wine kind of a deal. And that, to me, is what space opera kind of is. The, other, the st- Stories in space are not automatically space opera. I think what the problem
1: we get into is the affective versus the denoted definition. You're talking about the affect of space opera. You know what space opera is supposed to feel yes. like, and you, you see it. Uh, and we we are talking about science fantasy, I think we're talking about the affect of fantasy, something that feels like fantasy. Mm. But these are not necessarily good uh, objective, denotative definitions.
0: Actually, uh, you, you touched on something really critical. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, it's, it's relevant. My, my quibble with the uh, Linda Nagata article, which is just fine on i.com, mm. Um is that it doesn't address what I consider to be the affect of hard science fiction to me. And the affect of hard science fiction to me is like talking to someone with Asperger's. Oh, really? Explain that. It is kind of a a little bit cold, a little bit affectless, a little bit intellectual, um, a little bit oriented at puzzle solving rather than talking about people, that kind of thing. That to me is the affect of, of... of hard SF, uh, there is a certain, if you like, emotional hardness or coldness to it. I think
1: I'm for not me. sure that I agree with that entirely because we get into the next problem, uh, which is: is that characteristic of the whole work through baked through like a baked potato? It's constantly yeah. because I'm thinking, for example, of uh, let's take the the. Current poster child of hard SF is still Greg Egan. Yeah, and I'm thinking Clockwork Rocket, and a Clockwork Rocket has as much hard math. I mean, he's, he's, he's reversing a, a plus to a minus.
0: Yeah,
1: science. sure, sure, yeah, yeah. So there is a business in there about a young woman scientist facing a kind of classic mm-hmm. uh, sexism, uh, age well, not ageism, but the paternalism. I guess is the best word. And there are moments
0: in that, and there are moments in all of Egan that are intensely moving. That are That's intensely... true. That, that is very true. I mean, it's interesting you mention Egan because, as you know, he has just recently returned to writing a batch of short fiction, having focused on the uh, Clockwork Rocket trilogy just recently. Um, and the first story that he put out, which came back, which appears in 12 Tomorrows, which I would wow. expect to be a hard if you kind of publication, if only because it comes from MIT – you know, right. And from their, their science area. So when MIT put out Best New Science Fiction, I expect to be hard SF. And he's got a novelette in there, a very, very good novelette that you've read, called Zero for Conduct, about yes. a, young, um, a young woman who makes a scientific discovery and the impact that has on her day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. It is a story of character, a story of family, kicked off by a hard SF-nal thing, you know, in fact, you could really argue it's not really about the hardest the, the science fiction element at all. What it's really about is some kind of source of disapproved political disruption impacting on a family. I think that's not in disagreement with, with what Linda God is saying at all. I know it's, I think, it's in support of it in a way because it's saying there's far more to it, and this Greg Egan story, particularly, in fact, a number of them. I mean, he wrote a story for me that's coming out in January called Bit Players. Uh, Mm -hmm. which apart from a slight element we have to sort of think about one little thing, there's nothing puzzling or difficult about it. Um, We we refer many times through this podcast to his story Glory and the New Space Opera, which if you cut off the first three pages is a totally accessible science fiction story. Uh, It's possibly a great misnomer in his, in fact, in most of his short fiction now that I think about it, that his work is difficult to access. It's
1: his
0: novels that are difficult.
1: His novels are difficult to access, but the word access is key there because they're harder to access than they are to read. In a weird way, and this is, this was my experience with The Clockwork Rocket, and I, the second one I did not read, the third one yet, unfortunately, mm-hmm. is that once you get into that world, once once you sort of go through what we call the entrance exam, uh, they become very human novels. Yeah. And I think one of the failings and one of the things that gave Hard SF a bad name was that kind of chilliness, the sort of, lack of, well, novelistic depth, if you will, which was characteristic of another generation's icon of hard-ass, was Hal Clement. Sure. Uh, Hal Clement could come up with a pretty good suspenseful plot. Uh, his characters, no matter how alien they were, were pretty much all uh, mid-1950s male American characters, uh, even though if they might be mesquins. Uh, in in terms of the story, or when hard science fiction tried for emotion, as it did in things like the Cold Equations, or even some of Arthur Clarke's stories, or even some of Heinlein's stories, it tended toward bathos. It tended toward going for easy sentiment talent. Once you have a dying astronaut on Mars, or a dying astronaut on the moon or something, that's an easy kind of emotional chip to cash in, because you've already done the work to make a hard science fiction environment out of this. Uh, Clark's stories I'm, I'm thinking of his short stories now uh, stories like The uh, Transit of Earth for example um, are beautifully realized in terms of what at the time he was writing seemed to be the astronomical reality the stories themselves what happens in the stories too often just tend to be trite
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so so, so the, the problem with hard science fiction I think that Linda may be referring to indirectly is that it has a history of Getting the science right and not necessarily getting much of anything else right in terms of what we consider good fiction
0: is the change in hard SF that we've stopped forgiving it. That though, I don't think we forgive it
1: as much. I think I think by and large hard hard SF writers today, and I would include Linda Nagata in this. I would include Greg Egan. I would include Al Reynolds. Write better
0: prose and develop better characters
1: than they would have 60 years ago
0: let me put it to you a different way, because I take your point. I think you're right. Um, is the confusion in describing, analyzing, and codifying modern hard science fiction that we have stopped forgiving it its, the, its flaws of the past and it's improved those aspects and now it looks less readily distinguishable from the rest of science fiction?
1: That can be. That, that could be the case. I mean, I think there are certainly novels that foreground the science a lot more than they sure. you know. Um, but there are novels there have always been novels that have a lot of sort of scientific underpinning and Le Guin certainly did this Um, but that's that's the springboard of the novel, that's the base, that's the foundation on which the novel is built, it's not the whole novel so I I think you're absolutely right we're less forgiving of hard science fiction, but we're less forgiving for another reason, hard science fiction a couple of generations ago usually meant engineering fiction. It didn't necessarily it didn't deal much with science at all. Um, and it's becoming... Oh, this is hard. I was going to say it's becoming harder and harder to write science fiction that really deals with any kind of cutting-edge science because the common understanding of science has become so far removed from the common reader these yeah. days that in order to understand how Greg Egan is going to vary the speed of light in his universe is something that I don't think you could give to an average realistic fiction reader and expect them to pick up on.
0: So so then what you end up is with hard science fiction with better characters, better writing, but having to deal with science in a slightly more abstract way, I guess maybe because the science is either soft-sounding or so abstract it's difficult to articulate.
1: Well, and I would make a distinction between the two kinds of science we're talking about. Sure. Uh, the science which actually is the kind of thing where you're reading physics notes and finding out what the latest thing is in there. And science fiction, a lot of science fiction writers read these things and come up with ideas. The other way of conceiving of hard science fiction is what I think is the Ted Chang model of hard science fiction, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: in which he's not writing about scientific discoveries that are out there on the foreground of uh, contemporary research. He's writing about the process of science and how you would imagine the process of science in different contexts. Yep. Uh, and so he's, really, you could make an argument, and uh, we, we've talked about this, uh, he's talked about this uh, as well, you can make an argument that that's what real science fiction is, fiction about science, fiction not about the products of science, not yep. about the effects of science, but about the process of, given a particular world, given the world, like, say, take his story uh, Tower of Babel, a world in which Babylonian mythology works, yep. and then you write the story using those scientific principles. the story about the logic, the logical developments of the premise that you started with. Michael Swanwick has done something like this, so you can make an argument that real, that science fiction in that sense, fiction which is derived from science as a process, doesn't need to look like hard science fiction on the surface at all.
0: Well, possibly so. I mean, the truth of fact, the truth of feeling, which is Ted's most recent novelette. Mm-hmm. I think falls into that category quite a lot, or quite so, well. Okay, is a story that deeply backgrounds its its science element, hard science fiction as well. I can think of stories that are set against what I would consider to be certainly a science fictional background in some cases, a hard hard SF background, but don't actually seem to have engage with the that element directly
1: at all. Well, I think that's true, and I think that to some extent that raises the question of how much that element can be used metaphorically as opposed to how much it has to be a literal part of the plot. First thing, here's a concept that that immediately jumped into mind when you were talking about backgrounding that. Uh, One of M. John Harrison's more bizarre inventions is the Kafahuchi tract, which is this, I don't know if there's any scientific justification for that at all. It's a kind of Schism in space time. It's an oddball anomalous area, uh, which is in the background of three of his novels in the, in the Light trilogy. And uh, it's 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 a crucial under. It, but is it's, it, is it important to understand the science of that? I don't think the characters in the story begin to understand the science. It's a given which has all
0: kinds of metaphorical power. But is that a hard science fiction concept? I don't know. I mean, and, and do you have to? yeah is it hard s if if you have most of the elements that you discuss you, that that you address in that way but not others you know can you have an element in a hard s f story that basically breaks the laws of science as we understand it and rigorously explore all of the others and still be hard science fiction or does that one <laughs> breach invalidate that i mean I've got an example that I'm trying to work around to on. i'm gonna throw it in here now Just throw um it in. I have had discussions with a friend of this podcast and Hugo Award winner this year, Tansy Uh Randall-Roberts. And Tansy and I share some taste in fiction and some not. And we have both read most, if not all, of the works of Lois McMaster-Bujold, particularly those featuring Miles Naismith for Cossigan. And I've been entertained and enjoyed them. Now, it was Tansy's contention that Uh, Bujold wrote hard science fiction that things like the uterine technology or reproductive reproductive technology that that, that they describe make it hard SF. Uh, And there are books which turn on – well, they don't turn directly, but aspects of the plot turn on things like cryogenic technology Mm -hmm. or whatever else. Does that make them hard SF? Are they hard enough to be hard SF? Are they actually – I mean, my first feeling was that they were – Adventure stories told against a hard SF background. But then they've got warm holes and effectively fast than light travel. Well, but how much of that is developed anew for each novel, I guess? Uh, aspects of it. I mean, I'd have to go back book by book, but usually there's some element... I mean, the, the replicator technology appears consistently through the you know, the background of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cryogenic technology is particularly, I think, is mostly unique to a book called Cryoburn, and there would be others. I'd have to go through and break them down. I'm not going to pretend that I remember them enough one by one. And a lot of them are about, frankly, romping around in political intrigue or uh, romances or whatever. I think you know the most recent ones of Captain Vorpatril's Alliance is mostly uh, about a romance and that kind of thing. So there's, there's a lot of foregrounded stuff that's not to do with the science fictional elements, but the science fiction elements themselves are mostly pretty solid. I
1: think that what you're talking about there is, you could say the same thing about a lot of military science fiction, uh, where you establish, I mean, the, the ones that are set in a common universe, and probably goes back to, I don't know, Gordon Dixon's uh, series, or, or David Weber's Honor Harrington series. Um, once you've established a hard science fiction universe, you can introduce innovations into it, but essentially your hard science fiction background is established for the series, and you're not required to invent a new hard science fiction concept for each new novel in that series. But on the other hand, if you accept the fact that the hard science fiction universe has a background is all you need, then wouldn't Star Trek be hard science fiction?
0: Fast and light travel, Gary.
1: Okay.
0: All right, Fine. <laughs> well, that's well, that, but that, that, in fact, it's interesting. that FTL is the uh, is one of those benchmarks, isn't it? You know, we accept that it's it's probably completely unrealistic. Yeah. And so when you encounter it, then it's not hard SF.
1: That strikes me as being utterly silly. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 not hard SF because it has FTL travel in it, which which we don't know how to do and probably won't learn how to do. But are you saying that hard SF has permitted no conventions uh, that are not demonstrable according to known science?
0: Hmm. I'm saying some of the definitions that I've read would say that, which is not the same saying I, think- I would say that, but I would say that some of the definitions do, yes, because if you you know to me, one of the key definitions is you extrapolate from contemporary known science and you don't break any of its any of the rules that you know to be true. So, for example, if you know for a fact, as it appears pretty closely we do, that, yes. that fast and light travel is impossible, then the moment you put that in your, your story, you have broken the rules of hard SF. So, retroactively,
1: a story written in the 1930s was faster than all the space operas in of the 1930s, which... We're not given any giving any thought at all to Einsteinian you know, model that we're
0: just reading. Retroactively
1: stop being. I
0: guess never were hard science fiction. Right? No, okay. They probably never were hard science fiction. What I would probably say uh, on mm. that one is, you have to allow history to play its part, and mm-hmm. so it would be a, 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 a fairer de- description of hard science or the, the terms of hard science fiction would be. Doesn't violate contemporary, you know, the contemporary knowledge of science, of science at the time the writer wrote it, right? So, so okay. which I think is fair because I mean, if you look at it, okay, Edgar Rice Bur- Burroughs when he wrote the Mars books wrote fantasies. But anything that he yeah. knew about Mars, factually or otherwise, is largely beside the point because you lay down in a cave and went to sleep and woke up there. And even he would have known that that was nonsense, I would suspect.
1: And the same thing could be said of C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. Sure, sure, sure.
0: And that was never his intent. But a core group of the science fiction writers who were writing during the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s particularly, I would suggest, were attempting to write within what they knew at the time. I think that's true. So their intent Uh was to write hard science fiction, and I think that historically you allow that. And yes, sure, if you were to put together... I mean, it's like if you you put together a batch of hard science fiction stories from 2010 through 13 and compare them to stories written between, say, 70 and 73, they're going to turn on different aspects of science because our understanding in different fields have changed. Uh, I think you allow the historical ones. That's fair enough. Okay. uh, So we
1: we're creating really nightmares here for scholars who have to figure out, okay, what could Stanley Weinbaum have known in 1934? They're not
0: listening uh, to us, Gary. <laughs> no, okay, okay, they're not
1: listening to us, so we won't worry about that. Uh, since I, I actually had a point I was going to make it
0: yeah, okay, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it'll come back
1: to me. In, 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 uh, I guess there's a distinction. I was a philosophy professor once made this distinction. Uh, that you can define, and he wasn't talking about hard science fiction. Let me paraphrase him in terms of hard science fiction. You can, defi- you can define hard science fiction in terms of the possible, or you can define hard science fiction in terms of the not impossible. And they're not the same thing. No, they're not.
0: They appear to be the same thing. No, they're, they're not. not they, they only,
1: they're not the same thing at all. That's my point.
0: Oh, I well, know. I agree with you completely. Because, I mean, what, what we know to be true is one thing, and then there's what we don't know isn't true. And, and look, I'm comfortable in some ways with a hard science fiction that that walks down the path of not doing what we don't know isn't true. If you know what I mean, uh, I think it's fair. I mean, it's fair enough to break it. Well, it, well, to do what you want, pretty much, in an area where we don't actually know that something isn't true. I think that's that's pretty much fair enough. Mm-hmm. You've got to give storytellers some latitude to find places to tell their stories, but you don't break rules you know to be true.
1: But to go back to Tansy's point again, sure. which, I, which I can agree with, is that if, if you have a consistent universe over a series of novels, which essentially adheres to the uh, guidelines of what we take to be hard science fiction, mm-hmm. does, every, does every novel set in that world, in other words, all the Volkhausen novels, qualify as hard science fiction? And my answer to that is, I don't care.
0: <laughs> no, it's interesting. That's my—I mean, for all we, we're talking about terminology, we have for nearly an hour, right? For all that we're talking about terminology, my my interest isn't deep and true. I, I confess, I have a, a passing at best interest, and I, I honestly don't. I mean, I read the Vorkostigan novels because they're entertaining uh, and interesting. I don't read them because I think they're hard science fiction or adventure science fiction or flamingo fiction. Frankly, I read them because they're entertaining.
1: Well, and that seems to be what we're coming back to. That yeah. uh, I, I think I think uh, to get back to Linda Nagata's essay, she's absolutely correct in that describing science fiction in terms which seems almost deliberately intended to turn readers away. Is a bad idea.
0: Yeah, I, I, I see that. I mean, it's like as I was making that distinction earlier between using it for. Uh, taxonomic purposes and using it for for uh, marketing purposes. And it's a disastrous uh, marketing term, There's no, I'm sure, and should be, in fact, just not used by, in a marketing sense. It doesn't help attract people to read work, and we want people to read the work.
1: Well, and to some extent you do see marketing in, in which um, as you say, something that's is, is clearly a science fiction novel avoids that term like the play. It's not new. I mean, there was a Classic movie in 1940. This is a war movie called Mortal Storm, and it was set in pre-Holocaust Germany, and it clearly dealt with the rise of the Nazis. But the previews for the movie, I happen to know this because it's in a documentary that I use my class. The previews say this is a story of love, family, and courage, and then underlying streaming across the screen, not war. (laughs) It's a war movie. But they figured, okay. We want people to... We want basically what they were trying to figure out in 1940 was we want women to go see this movie. Yeah. And I think the same thing's true. If you say not science fiction, your uh, science fiction readers are by and large sharp enough to figure out whether a book is science fiction. without. And if they're told it's not science fiction, yeah. if it's a good science fiction book, they'll still pick it up. I,
0: I've got to say, the thing that I, I realize is a, is a contradiction for me is I'm interested in this discussion about terminology. I really am. And I, I'm curious about... How we analyze and break down our our texts, what we describe them as, all that kind of stuff. So I'm genuinely curious. I just don't care very much. And I find that's a a dichotomy. It's like, uh, I'm not greatly impressed about people describing works as blending genres. I mean, I figure that's been going on forever. Yawn. Who really cares? Um, I'm more interested in in finding ways to talk about how those stories... In fact, I had this, this disagreement with somebody online once. And it circles around this, and that is you know sort of we live in an era, as we've said many times before, where, where you know the center did not hold science fiction in fact, popular culture is pretty much atomized, mm-hmm. and yet I still want want to know in that atomized batch of overlapping, foggy, fuzzy sets, what's science fiction now? you know how far do I pull back to? I get a picture and see what science fiction is in two thousand and thirteen because I'm interested because I think it's more scientifically plausible, I think it's more diverse, it's more about. Integrate, integrating a broader range of viewpoints, and I think that's really healthy. Um, I'm not especially interested about other aspects of it, so you know.
1: I don't know what the. I, I, I wish I remembered what these collective nouns were. I remember there was an exaltation of larks, and I, there's a collective noun for starlings, I think.
0: Yeah, and just like there's a murder of crows, yeah. An exaltation murder of larks, book. all those kinds of things. In fact, I think the book's but called I, Exaltation of Larks. There's a
1: book, yes, by, by this guy, James Lipton, who is hmm. best known. Conducting these actors interviews, the actor's studio. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mentioned that because I saw a photograph online um, from Scotland, I think. And it, what was, was what appeared to be this cloud of... It looked like something shaped vaguely like a seal. Yeah. It was, it was clouds which turned out to be starlings. And that, so this is my new metaphor besides uh, a fuzzy set. It, it, science fiction is a bunch of starlings that seen together in the distance form a shape. Sure, but the shape doesn't hold together beyond the moment that you see it.
0: Fair enough. And just as I think the collective uh, noun for, for terms like this really should be a nonsense, a nonsense of terms.
1: Um. Yeah. Well, you know, do this some some of some of the academics like need to make a living doing stuff like this. So,
0: <laughs> see, us hobbyists don't, Gary.
1: Well, the thing is, no. When you talk about blending genres, you're right. It's been going on
0: forever, but it's
1: always been an interesting
0: energizing that's the genre. And nobody really... I'm wagging my finger there, Gary. I've not seen anybody talk about it in the one interesting way you could talk about it. Because this would be complicated, Gary. And that is it's not that you're blending genres. It's how the blending of genres may have changed. Has there been an evolutionary change in how writers are blending genres together now? Because the toolkit of story has always been open for every writer. So, how are they opening it? Are they opening it in a different way? Are they looking at it from a different angle? Are they combining different elements? That's interesting.
1: And I think it has
0: changed over time. I think, it's, I think you can find
1: traditions that go back, for example, uh, the interaction of horror stories and science fiction. Uh, you can probably start starting with Frankenstein, which is the ancestral work of both modern genres, and working down to when somebody like Lovecraft or Stephen King figures that in order to create the horror effect they need, mm-hmm. they'll use a science fiction album. They'll use something like King's The Tommy Knockers. Sure. Which is a very, uh, and then eventually, be, well, even before that, you get something like uh, John W. Campbell, who is as somebody who respected the hardness of hard science fiction as much as anybody of his writer's generation writes, who goes there because of the best way to write this story about an alien shapeshifter is to make it into a horror story. Yeah. yeah. So so, so those those genres have been playing off against each other in all sorts of sophisticated ways for a long time. Uh, I think when you start blending fantasy and magic realism and realistic fiction and historical fiction and steampunk fiction into all these things, you get interesting interactions. And I think one of the things I find fascinating about what's going on right now, and we were talking uh, some to lobby Tidar about this, because he's very good at it, is just drawing on traditions of pulp fiction, drawing on steampunk, drawing on historical fiction, drawing on, uh, in his case, some Israeli history as well. Yeah. Alternate history. Yep. And I think that's going on with more energy and more innovation than it ever has been. And I think one of the reasons all that energy is there is because writers are now much less tentative about doing that. Yeah. You don't have to just combine science fiction and fantasy or horror and science fiction or westerns and horror. You can put everything into the pot and see what happens. Yes. And I think that rarely happened before maybe 15 or 20 years ago. That may be true.
0: Interesting. But so, Gary... Gen- yeah. Yeah,
1: well. Energy from other genres. Sorry, what? I said genres are learning to get energy from other genres, from mainstream fiction, from Literary illusions, from pulp illusions, all yes. sorts of things. That, 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 that's something which I think is evidence that the blending of genres has energized a lot of genres in the last 15 or 20 years in a way they needed energizing.
0: Which is good, and certainly there's a feeling, and I say this you know, sort of as someone who's actually <laughs> de energized by reading too much short fiction at the moment. Uh, there actually is a lot of evidence of that, and it is exciting. Yeah, and we are at the end of what has been a reasonably interesting year, I think, and where you can see some of that sort of thing happening. And you and I have spent a lot of time talking about this very subject. Not the terminology aspect of it, though we talk about that at the no. time, but certainly the blending and, uh, of genres and how, how we see that happening. But, Gary, it is time mm-hmm. to put that discussion aside.
1: And it's almost time for us to enter our hiatus period.
0: It is, it is the time of hiatus. It is the time when you and I shall not be recording for some time. I mean, we, I think we have foreshadowed this, but it's now time to perhaps clearly state it and explain it to our dear listeners. And basically, as I understand what we've discussed, Gary, this very podcast will be the last we'll record as a new podcast for about six weeks. Well, in terms of the sense of
1: recordings, we still have podcasts
0: already recorded. We do. Um, over the next several weeks, uh, there will be new podcasts that we've recorded with Neil Gaiman and Paul McCauley. And then, uh, courtesy of our good friend Kat Sparks, who, who is the only person I know who's crazy enough to listen to old episodes of this podcast over and over again, uh, there will be four episodes that we're going to repeat so that during our hiatus you won't be completely alone. And then sometime in the end of January, we will reemerge from our chrysalis, newly energized and newly ready to confront things science fictional. And with new ideas and... No, 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 no. No new ideas, no new ideas.
1: Well, we'll we'll be close to
0: being... Refreshed. A recommended reading list. We'll be looking at things. Oh, that'll be done by then, Gary. We'll I mean, that's one of the reasons. Why, that. That's one of the reasons why. I mean, if dear listeners, you're asking why we're having IAD, I can at least tell you why I proposed it. Because I think it was I, me, who proposed it. And it's because I have to deliver a special issue of Subterranean magazine that I've edited, which will come out on the first of January. It's because I have to deliver the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume Eight, to its new publisher, Solaris Books. And I'm working furiously on finishing that. It's because I've got to edit rounds of locust columns. It's because there is the recommended reading short list short fiction list for Locust, which I compile with a bunch of commentators. And then the main books list, plus the most dreaded document of the year, Gary. Dun 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 I don't want to do that. See? See, I don't even have to tell you what it is. You know. No, I don't do that. You know? <laughs> Why don't you share with oh, us? I have an idea. What? I will come back with you and we will record a bonus episode if somebody's willing to write our, our year in review columns for us. Well, yeah. Anybody wants to write a year in review column? Hands up. Um. I mean, like, as by Jonathan Strand, they can sign it off by me and I'll hand it in. And I'll get paid. But I mean, they can write it for me. Oh, net, right? <laughs> but you know, if somebody wants to. In fact, no, they can have the money. I'll, 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 how's that? I'll forego the money. They can write the re- year review column for me. Um, yeah. I just don't want to do it, Gary. <laughs> it's.
1: You know, we, we, we'll, we'll talk about it when the time comes. <clears throat> <laughs> Meanwhile, could you share a couple of the uh, contributors to your subterranean issue, which I think sounds spectacular?
0: Oh, okay, sure, yeah. I mean, I'll be uh, twiddling away at this in the background. Uh, and there's a major new novella by Bruce Sterling, Pilgrims of the Round World, which is the first mm-hmm. work I've heard of of Crusader Punk. That's what he's, he's uh-huh. called it. There's an Eleanor Arneson novelette, The Scrivener, a Greg Egan story, Bit Players, Jeffrey Ford's The Prelate's Commission... Karen Joy Fowler's Nanny Ann and the Christmas Tale, Hay Fever by Francis Harding, Caligo Lane by Ellen Clagis, and I Met a Man Who Wasn't There by K.J. Parker.
1: That's a spectacular lineup. So I'm pretty happy with it. Switching to mail. <laughs> what was that?
0: No idea. You're playing with your computer. My computer if said there. something. Ah, <laughs> uh, funny. I have no idea. And you see, that's something which typica- typifies the part the, the technical mastery we have of this medium. Well, uh, we're getting better a Ish. little bit every now and then. Anyway. Oh, look, we're doing the best that we're going to. Uh, that's, that's not true. I'd like to see us. That's maybe one thing we'll work on during our hiatus, Gary. We'll have a chat about how we can tweak the technology to improve the recording and all those sort of things. And probably what we'll do is we'll have a couple of conversations about the brave new world of the podcast and how we can reinvent it, and then we'll come back and we'll do it the same anyway.
1: Yeah, probably. Do, but we'll take suggestions from, from readers, or from readers from listeners. Yeah. Uh, I, I prefer to think instead of taking a hiatus, we're giving our
0: listeners a break. <laughs> sure. I'm all for that. It's the holiday season and everybody needs a gift. Ours is yeah. to go away. Our, ours is to shut up
1: for a while, guess.
0: We'll, we'll put the name dropping back in a box. We won't sip any more glasses of wine near the, near the microphone, and, and I won't do any bad Waldorf and Statler impressions or whatever it is. and all will be well with the world. We're holding on to Waldorf and Statler. we're going to but right. we're going to keep that whole intro thing okay, yeah,
1: right okay, with we that
0: really? we're going to keep that or we're going to yeah. do one what musical interlude or something. Well, like a standard recorded thing. We just splice on the beginning. Let's ask the listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'll see what we get. There's about a thousand of them and about eight of them who comment. So, um, right. yeah, sure. But, but what I would say is, uh, I mean, I will talk to you anyway, but have a spectacular holiday season.
1: Same to you and to your family.
0: Thank you very much and to yours. And I would wish, as I'm sure you would, to every single listener to the podcast – to everybody who's appeared on the podcast, to everybody who said positive or, or negative or whatever kind of things about the podcast, a very Merry Christmas, a happy holidays, a happy Hanukkah, just good days and good health until we talk to you again.
1: We'll be back.
0: We'll like it not. We might be. Uh, we'll see if we, how we feel in five weeks. We'll sort of hop on the phone and go, yeah, what do you reckon? Yeah, I don't know. We could change the name. We could do something else. Can you play an instrument? Do I play an instrument? Yeah. You play the piano. You could write a theme. Well, Well,
1: I have no memory of having done that.
0: Oh, I've heard of this. Listeners, listeners, we're about to be done, but I just recalled that at at the last convention, uh, somebody was saying Gary plays uh, piano, so maybe Amelia who's there, you and Amelia could write a theme song.
1: Uh, Amelia is actually in the room with me now. As is Stacey, and and she's got she's giving a thumbs up to the theme song. There
0: you go. So Gary, when we come back, listeners, Gary Wolf and Amelia Beamer will have a theme song for the Code Feet Podcast. Fantastic. You have to sing it. No, no, no! I have to splice it in. Oh, okay. Maybe it'll just be an instrumental. <laughs> On that cheery note, until we talk to you again, happy holidays. And
1: you.